Good evening, and uh, welcome to this evening's Ralph Miliband uh, lecture on social justice and sustainability, arguments from political theory, but actually really this evening arguments from political philosophy. Um, this evening's event is part of a series, a Miliband series, on the environment, social justice and sustainability, which we're running at the LSE throughout the academic year. We are joined this evening by three very distinguished figures in political philosophy, Baroness Nora O'Neill, Professor Simon Caney, and from the LSE, Paul, Professor Paul Kelly. Together, they're going to examine and address how theories of social justice or concepts of social justice and sustainability might be related to each other and perhaps provide guidance for necessary, even urgent, social and political change, maybe guidance for clarity of thinking in the first instance, but that no doubt is a stepping stone for addressing most urgent and pressing and overwhelming public policy issues. Anora O'Neill is president of the British Academy. She's also chair of the Nuffield Foundation and professor of philosophy at the University of Cambridge. She's chair of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics and the Human Genetics Advisory Commission, which was hugely influential and has been closely involved in the work of a number of reports on biomedical issues. Anora was created a life peer in 1999 and sits, I believe, as a crossbencher. Nora has published extensively, and I will just list a few of her books, many of which, of course, will be familiar to you. Faces of Hunger, 1986, Constructions of Reason, 1989, Towards Justice and Virtue, 1996, Bounds of Justice, 2000, Autonomy and Trust in Bioethics, 2002, then The Reef Lectures, A Question of Trust, 2002, and most recently, Rethinking Informed Consent in Bioethics. That was published um, in 2007. Simon Caney is Professor of Political Theory at Oxford. He's published articles on climate change, global and intergenerational justice, poverty, rights, and cosmopolitanism in diverse places. He's the author of Justice Beyond Borders, 2005, an extremely ancient book, rethinking in some senses the terms and conditions of political theory. He's working on two books at the moment, one entitled On Cosmopolitanism. We'll have to talk about that. I'm working on a book with the same title, so we'll have to make adjustments. And another, Global Justice and Climate Change. Paul Kelly is Professor of Political Theory, as I've said, at the LSE. He's previously held posts at the University of Chicago, University College London, and University of Wales at Swansea. He's the author and co-editor of several books. I'll just mention Utilitarianism and Distributive Justice, 1990, The Social Contract from Hobbes to Rawls, 1994, Impartiality, Neutrality, and Justice, 1998, Multiculturalism Reconsidered, 2002, Liberalism, 2004, and Locke's Second Treaties, 2007. Honora will speak first, followed by Simon and Paul. They will each speak for 20 minutes before we will open up for discussion. It is a great honor, I think, to have this panel here this evening. I am absolutely delighted to welcome our first speaker. To begin with, Honora O'Neill, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, David. Well, I was very glad that tonight's uh, title didn't say uh, social justice, sustainability, and globalization. Uh, to deal with two is enough. 
And, of course, the title links two of the most protean terms of current political debate. And as you all know, they are not the terms in which political debate or theoretical debate about politics has traditionally been cast. However, it is very hard to get a grip on them, which is immediately apparent from the fact that nobody claims to be against social justice or against sustainability. The terms, at least, are seen as beyond criticism, contemporary versions, if you will, of motherhood and apple pie, but, of course, more abstract, more lofty, and that, in the eyes of some people, makes them quite superior. But if these notions are too elastic, there may not be very much that is substantive or specific to be said in their favour or against them, ubiquitous though they are in current discussions. The substantive and specific things may rather be points about particular conceptions of sustainability or particular conceptions of social justice. So I shan't content myself with obeisance to these ideals, but I'm going to say a bit about the coherence and the possibility and the difficulty of combining certain aspects or conceptions or versions of social justice and sustainability. I begin with some thoughts about why these terms have become popular. The term social justice is, I think, popular because it suggests that we're thinking about justice that extends far beyond civil and political justice to social and economic arrangements at large. And that sounds nice. But if we're to take social justice seriously, we need to know what possibilities lie beyond civic and political justice, whether they supersede or replace or perhaps confine civic and political justice, and whether we are still to take civic and political justice as seriously as once we did. I think the received answer to this, this question is that we're looking at a supplement, or some would say a completion, of civic and political justice, and quite a lot lurks in that notion that it's a completion. Using the idiom of human rights, which is now the approved idiom for talking about justice, we should, if we take social justice seriously, take the full range of human rights seriously. Justice demands that we aim to have it all. In particular, most of those who use the phrase social injustice, social justice, have in mind the importance of social justice for equality. And in the brief time that I have, I'm going to say something about aiming for equality while noting that there are other social goods that are quite often thought of as aspects of social justice, such as solidarity or dignity, about which I'm not going to say anything this evening. Leaving those aside, we note at once that there are countless possible equalities, but not all of them matter. Some equalities are logically impossible. Equal success, equal enjoyment of positional goods. Others are logically, but not really possible. Equal height, equal health. Others are possible um, in both ways, i.e. logically and really, but they're trivial. Equal length of hair, or equal frequency of haircut. Some that are indeed possible are and not trivial, are quite uh, probably nothing to do with justice. You may speak French and I may speak English. This inequality is possibly of no moral or political significance. 
the equality that discussions of social justice may be able to say something useful about must at least be logically and really possible and at least non-trivial. But there I think the common ground gives out. Debate has typically been about some rather abstract equalities. Some of them are thought of as falling under political and civic justice, such as equality under the law, equal political rights, equal protection against unfair discrimination. Others are thought of as a matter of equalizing other social arrangements. Advocates of social equalities are often divided on whether it's equal process or equal outcomes that matters. There are some blithe spirits who simply think that both should be achieved. On the other hand, we find advocates of equal opportunities, sorry, on the one hand, we find advocates of equal opportunities demanding equal process, for example, in education, in employment, in healthcare. They are committed to fair process and non-discrimination. On the other hand, we find advocates of equal outcomes in education, in economic matters, who think that even if results can't be just the same for all individuals, still they should somehow be equalized for each social group. Most debates on these matters take a rather narrow view of what constitutes a social group. They think, for example, that we should measure and seek to rectify or reduce inequalities between genders, between some ethnic groups, and between some income groups, but not those between other possible groupings of human beings. It's very curious. Because equal outcomes for individuals or groups are both of them remarkably hard to achieve, those who think them desirable often settle for what they take to be more attainable surrogates, such as distributions of outcomes that are more equal in some respect, e.g. raising the level of, of the least well-off, that's Rawls's second principle, broadly speaking, or limiting the gap between the least and most well-off on some dimension. Now, in the time available, I'm not going to question the distributivist assumption that has dominated so much recent discussion of social justice, but I do think it's very ripe for discussion. Now, the term sustainability, I think, is popular for quite different reasons. It's popular, above all, because of its association with environmental protection. We should, it said, aim for sustainable ecosystems, sustainable agriculture, sustainable forestry, sustainable fisheries, and sustainable energy generation. But we should also aim for sustainable activities and development, which, depending on one's focus, are thought of as including or requiring, it's rather a long list, sustainable growth, sustainable businesses, sustainable finance, <coughs> sustainable economics, sustainable government, sustainable charities and sustainable schools, sustainable travel, sustainable tourism and sustainable aviation, sustainable consumption, sustainable procurement, sustainable investment, sustainable marketing, sustainable architecture, sustainable design and sustainable fashion, sustainable homes, sustainable cities and sustainable construction, sustainable concrete and sustainable drainage systems. A little Googling will get you lots and lots more. So what is going on here? Let me cut to the chase. The terms social justice and sustainability are both highly indeterminate. In my trade, philosophy, we call such phrases incomplete predicates, meaning that we don't have any grip on them unless we complete them in one or another specific way, and that a great deal of the argument and debate is about various completions, alternative completions, 
and of course a great deal of the talking past one another arises because people imagine different completions of these predicates. You can at least in theory aim for, say, equal opportunities and equal outcomes, but not all specific interpretations of these are compossible. You can at least in theory have sustainable growth and sustainable agriculture, but at certain points choices are likely to be needed. Any achievable configuration of social justice and any achievable configuration of sustainability will require us to sacrifice, if you think that's too hard a term, substitute trade-off, some forms of social justice and sustainability to achieve others. Moreover, if we aim both for social justice and for sustainability, we shall need to aim not merely for a configuration of each that is internally coherent, but a, for a configuration of the two taken together that is coherent. So we might find that we have to trade off some forms of equality for some forms of sustainability, or the other way round. Moreover, if we're committed to further aims or ideals, solidarity, spiritual or aesthetic ideals, the range of compossible forms of social justice and sustainability are likely to be further constrained. I believe that if we don't recognize this, we are only playing with the rhetoric of social justice and sustainability and not thinking seriously about either of them. Now, in making these points, I've said nothing at all so far about feasibility or, to be blunter, the difficulty of achieving any one of the internally coherent configurations of social justice and sustainability that are in principle possible given various starting points and given various assumptions. The practical constraints are huge. And discarding combinations of aims that are not compossible or compossible only with extreme difficulty and implausible assumptions is only a beginning. So let's try a first step. However, I don't believe that the costs of advocating impossible or improbably difficult combinations of aims is sufficiently widely recognized in current public debates. So let me focus on that point very briefly. There are many who advocate conceptions of social justice that allegedly combine equal procedures, roughly non-discrimination, let's be fuzzy about it, and equal or at least more equal outcomes. They will call, for example, for equal outcomes and fair process. And in addition, on occasion, it's very popular, for greater choice. In fact, it seems that all three political parties in the UK are committed to these improbably difficult combinations of commitments throughout the delivery of public services. Choice, yes. Non-discrimination, yes. But more equal outcomes, also. Yet in most circumstances, fair process, that is no unfair discrimination in dealing with differing cases, cannot produce equal outcomes. Most obviously, for example, demands that schools deliver equal educational results or universities deliver equal access for all applicants cannot be met without unfair discrimination. Still less can they be met when young people are offered choices as they generally are in schools and universities, which differentiate their achievements and fitness, not to mention their preferences for various further activities. There's just no chance that fair process or choice, or both of them taken together, will generally lead to equal outcomes, just as there's no chance of achieving equal outcomes without limiting choice and relying 
here, there, or in many places, on various forms of unfair discrimination. Similarly, in employment, where individual choice will produce differing pools of applicants and meritocratic demands for fair process will require us to take account of their qualifications and experience and so differentiate candidates for jobs, promotion, and redundancy. So we'll preclude equal results. So the first question to ask, or the first questions, if we think equalities are needed for social justice, must be to ask, well, which equalities matter and which are compossible? Then we need to ask which are compossible with other goods, which are practically achievable, and which we should pursue. It's as incoherent to demand fair process and equal outcomes as it is to assume that differential outcomes constitute evidence of unfair discrimination. Now, similar points can be made about the compossibility of different aspects of sustainability. As soon as we ask just which activities should be sustainable across which time periods, choices must be faced. A business may be economically sustainable across the medium run, yet contribute levels of pollutants that make certain areas unsustainable for agriculture across that same time period. A level of population growth may be sustainable across a defined time period, but not across an indefinite future. Design or fashion can perhaps be made more sustainable, but probably not as sustainable for the environment as having less design and less fashion. Aviation that is more environmentally sustainable may nevertheless be much less sustainable than less aviation. Sustainable concrete may, I think, be less sustainable than less concrete, and so on. Now, I don't intend these comments as counsels of despair, but rather as counsels of realism. In the nice years, by which I mean the non-inflationary constant expansion years that we have just been through, we may sometimes have talked, I think unwisely, as if we could have it all. Among political and social theorists, that outlook has, I think, been sustained by the domination of human rights rhetoric in the vast majority of discussions of social justice and in discussions of many environmental issues. Now, a focus on rights, foregrounds, recipients, and entitlement, the spectator perspective, however, at the cost of leaving it unclear and often unspoken and undefined what must be done by whom if any rights are to be realized and what the necessary conditions are for getting it done. Efforts to, as the phrasing has it, realize rights, which you might think has something to do with realism but needn't. Um, Efforts to realize rights, that is to make them justiciable, are spoken of as if we can take it for granted that there is some coherent way to combine a plurality of rights or supposed rights and that it's just a matter of ingenuity to find the combination of requirements, prohibitions, incentives, and restrictions that will deliver that uh, supposed right intact. One result has, of course, been a tide of complex and detailed legislation, regulation, guidance, and codes of practice that aim to fix innumerable obligations and to adjust them to one another in detailed and ingenious ways. The hope has been that these interlocking requirements will somehow, somehow secure and realize the full range of rights or supposed rights for all in all circumstances. It seems to me that in current circumstances, 
we need a sharper and more realistic approach to achieving a coherent range of social justice and sustainability. And I'm going to suggest one implication for thinking about sustainability and one for thinking about social justice. Realism about sustainability, I think, begins with thinking about the environment. Without the necessary natural environment, all else fails. All other aspects of the world, all social justice. If we are to think seriously about sustainability, we need then to accept that many activities and developments that are now labelled sustainable may only be sustainable for a somewhat longer period than alternative or established versions of the same activities and developments. Sustainable concrete and sustainable fashion may be more sustainable than some other sorts of concrete and fashion, or so it's said. But a more sustainable environment may still do better with less of these two supposedly sustainable products. Short of demonstrable neutrality, or better, in the use of scarce resources or damaging technologies, many activities that are said to be sustainable are less than sustainable in the long run. And this perhaps suggests that we should start by trying to be more parsimonious and accurate in speaking of, the technolo of technologies and activities as sustainable and more careful to state the assumptions under which and the time period for which they are judged to be sustainable. Realism about social justice, I think, begins with thoughts about the necessary conditions of human survival. A simple thought with many corollaries and, of course, much indeterminacy. But I can suggest two which I think we might want to discuss. Realistic thought about social justice would, I suggest, no longer marginalize questions about population growth with a complacent assumption that somehow we will ingeniously achieve social justice for escalating populations in degrading environments, because that's where it's heading. I do not, of course, mean that the way that population growth is reduced has to be by the sorts of coercive measures that have given population policies in China and more sporadically elsewhere a bad name. There are many other antinatalist policies that can be but are not being implemented. Realism about social justice for our times, I think, will also demand a very sober focus on possible configurations of social justice that are feasible starting from where we are. That would mean an acute and realistic focus on the means at our disposal and their <coughs> effective deployment. Do we have not merely the, ad the ad adequate material resources, because those are somehow in question, but an adequate range of knowledge and skills, scientific, technical, institutional, or human, to achieve the needed changes. How will we obtain them if we don't yet have them? How do we, do we know how to deploy and combine them? What, in short, are we willing to sacrifice to achieve sustainable justice or trade-off? Thank you.
just check the mechanics. Well, thank you very much, um, David, for the invitation. Uh, I must say it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to follow an aura, um, and so I regret being in this particular position now for that reason. Uh, what I want to do is talk about not just justice and sustainability, but um, in particular global justice and sustainability, because it seems to me the global problems are the particularly pressing ones, both from the point of view of achieving justice and from the point of view of the challenges to sustainability. Uh, one eminent analyst of both of these topics was Brian Barry, a uh, once-time professor here, of course. Um, and uh, given uh, Brian's unfortunate death last week, uh, I just wanted to begin by paying tribute to his pioneering contribution to both of these topics. Now, as Honora said, um, the, the topics or the concepts of justice and uh, sustainability are both um, kind of hooray words and massively indeterminate. So the method I've adopted is to try and fix some content to justice provisionally and some content to the idea of sustainability provisionally and then seeing ways in which one can try and integrate them so that they are uh, compossible. And I want to explore one very prevalent way of combining these and um, say why I think it's inadequate and then give an indication of four different suggestions for achieving um, a formulation of these concepts that retains the values that they articulate um, but combines them in a way that they are consistent. This means that what I'm going to say is going to be somewhat dogmatic and that's why I say I, I want to propose these provisionally. So let me just put forward, you know, from the point of view of global justice there are lots of candidates given. Um, I affirm all of these with decreasing confidence between one, two, and three. Um, provisionally, I just want to focus on one. Um, and Henry Hsu published a book in 1980 called um, Basic Rights, which was familiar to many people, where he defended some minimal um, human rights to socioeconomic needs. He also defended a set of responsibilities, uh, both negative, duties not to harm these interests that are protected, and positive, um, to come to aid if they are jeopardized by other human beings or by natural disasters um, or by non-compliance. So provisionally I want to say, well, let's just think about this panoply of choices and hone in on entitlement number one, some minimal human rights understood in a socioeconomic sense. And it's, it's clearly apparent that the world fails miserably in upholding these rights. Um, any UNDP report um, over the last 15, 20 years gives you depressing figures on just how miserably we fail. So one might immediately think, well, uh, let's foster and promote economic growth and development so that we can at least meet one and maybe two and three. Sorry, I'm having a problem with... Okay, so it would clearly be rash to do that without asking um, how sustainable such a project is. Um, but as Anora said, sustainability is a very protean term. And I had much more trouble trying to figure out what I thought sustainability meant. So I'm going to spend a bit more time fleshing this out. 
I take it sustainability has three features. Um, one is um, sustainability is an inherently intertemporal concept. It's talking about sustaining something over time. So you need some subject matter, some thing or ideal or institution that is to be preserved. It's also inherently a um, derivative concept. You only want to sustain um, valuable things. You don't want to sustain threats to human life, other things being equal. So it's an empty concept in one term. It just says we should sustain certain things over time. Um, but so this one has an answer to the subject question, what it is. Um, one then needs an account of how much uh, is worth sustaining. Because sustainability could just mean a minimum threshold. Um, it could mean maximizing some natural capital over time or human capital. So there needs to be some distributive ideal. And, of course, there needs to be uh, someone uh, who is duty-bound to honor this ideal and promote it. So let me just go through each of these possibilities. Uh, when people discuss sustainability, they often use this language of weak and strong, where um, weak sustainability says that... Um, there's natural capital, natural resources, and there's human capital, and we can destroy the one, natural capital, as long as we replace it with the other. And so what matters is just the amount of capital. Natural human doesn't really matter. Where strong sustainability says that natural capital should be preserved and it cannot be substituted, it cannot be destroyed and then replaced by so just to locate one provisional suggestion here, just drawing on the ideal of human rights that I mentioned earlier, you might say, well, at the subject matter of sustainability um, is to preserve uh, that stuff which is needed to serve important um, human interests to, that people need for their just entitlements. So that would be a justice-based way of filling out the idea of sustainability. Sustainability means justice over time. Of course, you know, we have other notions of sustainability which are not justice-related. If one goes to Austria, you will see much less of the gross Glockner than you might have done 20 years ago. And you might think it's regrettable that human behavior has resulted in the destruction of some glaciers. And you might think it's irreplaceable, that um, it's not that one could destroy it and then pay people some more money. It's wrong to have destroyed it in the first place. Now, I'm very sympathetic to that idea, but it's not a justice-based ideal. It's a sort of an ethical ideal of irreplaceable value. So let's move on. That Swift says this is the stuff, the stuff, the subject matter. Well, sustainability also, as I said, has a distributive component. Um, and this often gets missed when people talk about sustainable development. Um, well, just how much should one sustain so if you took the minimal human rights approach I mentioned earlier, you would say that specifies the threshold below which um, people should not fall, below which resources should not fall. And with respect to the weak and strong sustainability distinction, you just say, well, um, whatever combination meets those human needs. So you can, have no, you can be neutral on the question of whether the destruction of natural capital is good or bad. As I put on, on the PowerPoint, it's kind of peculiar then that people say there's justice and there's sustainability and they conflict because really all that's going on here then is some idea of um, justice as a whole within which there are two different categories, intergenerational and the current. So it's not two concepts clashing, it's a dispute maybe within one concept.
of course, talking about the ethical ideal, um, you could just say, well, there is no such thing as maximizing um, sort of natural artifacts. It's just preservation at their current level. Now, when people talk about human rights and the pre preservation of vital interests, people often say, well, just how much um, is secured under this? What kind of specificity can we give to it? And I thought the most illuminating way of thinking about this comes from suggestion rules made in three separate places, which is to say, well, look, the, the appropriate distributive principle should be guided by the following idea. You ask parties in the original position to select a principle which has the following feature. He says, the correct principle is that which the members of any generation, and so all generations, would adopt as the one their generation is to follow. So you select one that you're willing to comply with, but, he continues, it's also the principle that you would, would have wanted preceding generations to have followed and later generations to follow, no matter how far back or how far forward. So the first part says you should choose a principle with which you're happy to comply. Wow, that's very easy. The second one says, however, it must be the principle that you wished to have been applied to you by previous generations. <coughs> and for me, that's a very useful way of thinking about the kind of trade-offs one might make for example, about the destruction of, um, of glaciers or canyons or rainforests um, or desertification, to think, well, would we be happy with the choice we're offering to the future generations? So anyway, these are some, as I say, provisional thoughts about the distributive principle. It's not just because Honora is here that I mentioned the duties, but it, it is uh, appropriate, given Honora's uh, emphasis on duties, to say, look... Um, this would clearly generate negative duties not to jeopardize these ideals, but also positive duties, and this is more complicated. Some of the most pressing threats to the Earth's atmosphere and um, biodiversity are already in play. They've already um, been caused to some extent by emissions from the 1840s onward. And of course they can't pay. Um, so one might posit a positive duty to cover their contribution to the problem, any non-anthropogenic change, if there is any such. And through, thirdly, legitimate ex, uh, exceptions to the first principle, by which I mean uh, it seems to me unreasonable, especially if one starts from the human rights approach I mentioned at the beginning, to tell uh, the, the poverty-stricken of this world that they must not act in a way that jeopardizes the human rights of others. What principle one should say is humanity as a whole is under this negative duty, not that each and every individual is. And so it seems wrong for me to demand that Indians or the Chinese should forfeit some kind of material advancement when others could forfeit their wealth. So that's what I'm just explaining why clause three is in there. So I've tried to posit these kind of, what I hope um, is intuitively appealing notions of justice on the one hand and, and sustainability on the other. And at this point, uh, especially if you talk to hard-nosed policymakers, they say, okay, well, we've got to choose. Um, which are we going to honour? Um, as I said earlier, I think the, on, the challenge is misdescribed uh, as just being a clash between one value, justice, and another value, sustainability, because really it's a challenge between justice here and now. <coughs> and sustainability where it's interpreted as justice for future generations and this duty to preserve the natural world or respect the natural world. And I put Bjorn Lomborg and Thomas Schelling down there um, because they, um, 
controversial for various reasons, but they put this challenge most acutely. Schelling first, in the late 1970s, said, well, we could mitigate climate change, but the money would be better spent. It would be more cost-effective on other goals. So one can't have intergenerational justice, maybe, and justice here and now. Now, in the remainder of the time, I want to say how I think one shouldn't handle this challenge and how one might handle this challenge. This is the sole justification to the PowerPoint, is to have this Ramsey formula up here. So one response that is prevalent amongst, well, many economists, not all economists, is to say, well, the future will take care of itself. We should meet current generational needs now. And this is built on three things. One is an assumption that there will be economic growth, but also that we should focus on economic growth now. The second and the third thing are on this formula which comes from Frank Ramsey, the Cambridge mathematician and philosopher, where SDR is the social discount rate, delta, which is by the equal sign, reflects pure time preference. Eta, if you don't know, is that one. Eta reflects diminishing marginal utility, and the rest is the rate of growth. Now, sometimes people say, so for example, William Nordhaus at Yale, say, well, future generations will be wealthier, and we can, as it were, not worry about future sustainability and focus on the here and now. Because delta should be positive, by which he and many others mean it's legitimate to engage in pure time preference. It's legitimate to accord less weight to someone's moral standing the further off in time they are. So delta matters. We can discriminate against people because they're further off in time. Eta matters because they say, well, if the world will be wealthier and there's diminishing marginal utility, then the money goes further if we spend it on people here and now, and it will produce less benefit in the future. So it has pure time discounting, which is the delta, and it has growth discounting, which is we can spend less money on people because why spend it on the wealthy who are going to be in the future rather than the poor who are alive now? And this is one way that one could handle this challenge. We can focus on global intragenerational justice for the here and now, and the future sustainability will look after itself because they will be wealthier. So here's three objections to that way of reconciling these ideas. Um, One is uh, empirical. It assumes constant economic growth, which seems remarkably optimistic. Um, Even before the credit crunch, it seemed remarkably optimistic. But more interesting, I think, philosophically, um, it's concerned only with the mass aggregate of wealth. So it says the future will be wealthier. And this fails to disaggregate. So if you are animated by the idea of human rights I mentioned earlier, you won't care so much if the future mass uh, on average or in total are wealthier if it turns out to be the case that very many of them fall beneath a threshold. So it either fails to disaggregate, or it says, sure, we do care about future people who might be poor, future Bangladeshis, but don't worry, the future wealthy will look after them. 
So either it assumes that we shouldn't disaggregate, which seems implausible, or it assumes that the future advantage will be compassionately motivated to care for the interests of the future disadvantaged. And that seems to me reckless as an assumption given the behavior of humanity so far. Third objection. Suppose the future is wealthier. Suppose that we shouldn't disaggregate, let's say, or let's suppose that we think they will be nice people. This overstates the importance of wealth. Why would wealth matter? Well, let's go back to the idea of sustainability. It might matter because you think you can buy adaptation. But climate scientists say our understanding of the specific impacts and where they will fall is just radically imperfect. So we don't know where the bad effects are going to fall precisely. Secondly, they say, well, adaptation is a function of governance. It's not throwing money at a problem. It's having accountable political structures. So money doesn't actually secure that kind of sustainability. So then sometimes people say, look, we can have the best of all these possible worlds because, okay, they're going to suffer bad things. But they've got more money, so they can be compensated. Well, let's return to the idea of rights. What this says, in effect, is it's okay for me to punch someone if I do it with a view to then writing them a check. If one thinks the language of rights, then that's wrong. You should, of course, if you do punch someone, I want to assure you, you should compensate them. But what you shouldn't do in advance is go out and rape, kill, torture, punch someone with a view to writing them one massive check. So even if the future is wealthier and people are disposed to, we've misunderstood the value of wealth. And thirdly, more briefly, I think the same is true about the irreplaceable natural value. The whole point about it is it's not substitutable, not that one can substitute it with more money. So I think this way of reconciling, as it were, justice now and sustainability doesn't succeed. What it really does is promise an unsustainable future. So here's some thoughts about how one might try and dissipate the tension. One is we should jettison kind of these industrialized notions of development. To me, Mill's words in the Principles of Political Economy, in Book 4, Chapter 6, or maybe it's Book 6, Chapter 4, on the stationary state, are exactly right, where Mill says what matters is achieving important human interests, and nothing depresses him more than the idea of people slavishly producing more and more wealth. So the challenge looks acute if we think of it as sustainability versus this material development. Okay, another kind of preliminary point about the challenge is, and let me go back to Lomborg and the skeptical environmentalist. He says, imagine you've got this sum of money and you can either spend it on combating infectious diseases or on climate change. You can only do one, he says. It looks like it's unreasonable to say to someone you should do both, although he in fact says to do so would only cost 3% of global GDP, which seems to me a reasonable price to pay. The point I want to make here is it makes a lot of difference on whether one thinks the negative duties are being violated or the positive ones. 
See, if we're talking about positive duties, someone might say, you're asking me to aid this person and that person. It's unreasonable to ask me to do both. But imagine I hit one person, get in my car, drive along and knock someone else over. I violated two negative duties. It seems quite fair to say to me, you should firstly compensate one and compensate the other. So the tension seems acute. It seems unrealizable if we think of it as positive duties that pull people to do things that we might think they shouldn't have to do. Whereas we generally think you should comply with your negative duties. Two other ways of kind of minimizing this tension. It seems to me the tension seems acute because we haven't really fully fleshed out the duties. So it seems acute if you think um, that the duty to develop for China and India falls wholly on them. They should bear the burden. And if we assume that they should also bear the burden for combating climate change. But if you think the duties should be ascribed to the principles I described earlier, which have a polluter pays element and an ability to pay element, then um, you're asking us to pay. And I don't see why we are unable to, especially if we've contributed to the problem. So my third point is just that um, the tension, the challenge seems um, incredible uh, if we don't specify who the duty bearers are. If we specify who the duty bearers are, um, then it seems a lot to ask, but not unreasonable. And the fourth point I want to make is just uh, completely unphilosophical but it seems we get, we get clarity on this if we think of policies. So there are policies for fostering economic development, which meet those needs I described earlier, uh, which would exacerbate climate change, let's say. And there are ways of combating climate change, like putting taxes on air miles or tariffs on air miles, which would combat development. But here are three ways that one can have both. So one is you can incentivize and remunerate people for clean technology transfer to developing countries. That doesn't, that fosters development but doesn't compromise environmental protection. The second is you can auction off emission permits and then use the money to invest in adaptation. Uh, and the third is um, you can enable some people to have higher emissions if they've engaged in processes which um, foster clean development in other countries. Now those of you who, who are knowledgeable about climate change might think I'm endorsing the Kyoto Protocol's clean development mechanism, and I'm not. And I'll, I'll explain why if anyone cares to ask. Okay. So here's kind of three thoughts in conclusion. Um, we can come up with ways that combine justice and sustainability. Um, the economic route, I think, uh, is a misleading one. A second way that I try to describe in its bare bones um, I think shows that they are, they can become possible. One can define justice and sustainabilities in ways that they don't clash. My, my final point is, um, lest this sound too optimistic, this only works under conditions of compliance. And so the radical question now to ask is, what should China do, given American and North European violation of their duties to lower emissions? That would be a case where one has a choice either to develop but to jeopardize sustainability or not to develop and um, arguably um, protect sustainability. I have no solution for that kind of tragic choice. My, my final kind of observation is that it's incumbent on those who aren't in that situation to lower their emissions and environmental footprint to prevent it being the case that others have to face that tragic choice. Thank you very much.
Thanks very much. Um, Simon had to follow Honora, but I have to follow both of them. Um, I'll try and keep this um, fairly brief uh, to give you time to ask questions, not just of me, but of everybody else, um, because lots has already been raised. And I'm going to um, cover some issues that have already been discussed, but I, I, want to, I wanted to reflect on the title of this session, Social Justice and Sustainability. So I'm going to say something about social justice and sustainability and looking at arguments from political theory. And I sort of started off by looking at, well, what does political theory, what does it actually contribute to debates about social justice and sustainability? And, I mean, there's a lot of political theory out there that deals with issues of environmental concern and so on, various green political theories of various kinds, arguments for environmental justice or justice towards nature, work of uh, a colleague here, David Schlossberg, or John Dreisick, um, many, many other people. But all of those really touch on issues of green advocacy, extending you know, ecological politics into debates about political theory. What, what you don't find is you don't find quite the same concerns that you see with international justice. And international justice or global justice is something that, um, well, both of my co-panelists have, have contributed to significantly. So lots of work is done on that. Um, the, site, the key sites of, of, of political theory have very little to say about social justice and sustainability. Um, and I guess it was partly that that I, that I wanted to reflect on. How, how, does one, how does one then proceed, given that uh, there doesn't seem to be much said? Um, how does one explain it? And I, I take, um, as my starting point, um, the work of a colleague that Simon's already mentioned, Brian Barry, um, who was one of the few who did actually try and think about the relationship between um, normative political theory and questions about environmental sustainability, um, linking social justice and questions of sustainability. And that, that's going to be my starting point because um, the short presentation I've got really draws on a, an issue that comes out of, of um, one of his um, interventions in, in, in this debate. So this is not a homage to him, but it's just he's one of the few people that, um, that really takes these debates seriously and he's always a good point start with, I'm going to end up sort of criticising his conclusion. One of the things that, um, that Brian insisted on, which, was, which is always quite useful, is that you can start thinking about the unfamiliar by trying to link it with the familiar. So one way of, of, of looking at the question of, of, of social justice in an intergenerational sense would be to sort of think through what we do with stretching questions of social justice in other ways. Um, and we've seen some of that, I think. Simon's presentation about looking at questions of global justice as a way of you know, stretching concepts that we might have started with, concepts and theories that we might have started with, within um, confined political communities, states, for example, and seeing whether or not actually they have implications beyond borders and so on. So there's a big debate about that. 
Can we do the same with, with, with questions of intergenerational justice? Um, and that's the sort of starting point. What I'm going to end up with is a sort of pessimistic conclusion about just what follows from doing that, which doesn't mean that you can't, but it shows some of the costs that might be involved in so doing, or at least one very crucial cost in, in so doing, which links to an issue that, that Honora finished off with. So let me start then with the issue of sustainability. And what, what's sustainability? Um, I don't have much to add by way of theorizing the concept, so I'm going to start with, with um, the, the sort of standard statement that comes from the World Commission on Environment and Development, the Brundtland Report, which, which basically argues that sustainability is the, the aspiration to meet the needs of the present without compromising the possibility of future generations to meet their own needs. So policy is sustainable insofar as it doesn't disadvantage future generations in terms of um, the present, doesn't privilege us. Another way is also to, to look at the question in terms of the idea that there's some X, some thing whose value should be maintained in as far as it is within our power to do so into the indefinite future, some, something along the lines of what, what Simon was talking about earlier. And, and we can put all sorts of things into that, that, uh, that category, the, the box X, the thing that has value. I mean, probably lots of us think lots of things should be extended into the future. I'm sure past generations thought that um, um, you know, passing on the faith was part of what should be extended into the future and so on. There's all sorts of ways in which one could look at that, fill out that concept. Well, two things I think we can draw from those initial definitions. One is an overtly pessimistic one. I mean, it might be the case, given the prospect of uh, man's current impact on the environment, that it's already beyond our powers to pass on to future generations those things necessary to make possible meeting their needs. We may have already done enough damage that sustainability is an issue that's really off the agenda. If the most pessimistic views of climate change are such, um, then worrying about sustainable development is sort of beside the point. We've already, or those who've come before us too, have already messed things up sufficiently. Now, it seems to me that on, on that question, you know, we have to rely on the deliverances of other disciplines and other experts. This is not something that political theorists can really say much of, about. We can note it as a problem, but, you know, we can't arbitrate whether it's true or not. Okay, I, I, I don't know. Um, going back to the first presentation in this series... And we had some pretty good account of the evidence, which, which led to pretty pessimistic conclusions about you know, where we are in relation to environmental degradation. Okay, so that's an issue that's, that's really for others to decide. Okay? So, as a matter of fact, there's actually little. We may not be able to pass on um, sufficient to future generations um, that which they need in order to secure their needs. Um, if that is so, I mean, another conclusion might be that we already have stronger obligations to transform our current activities, but not necessarily in terms of giving justice to future generations. 
Here we might just be recognizing the consequences of the bads that we've already done, and there our obligations are in a sense almost acknowledging um, the punishment that follows from um, injustice already carried out right, through us, through preceding generations. The question then becomes much less one of, of how one does justice to the future, um, except in a sort of rectificatory sense of how one you know, acknowledges our, our, our obligations in terms of um, accepting the burdens of, uh, of, of punishment for breaches of, of, our, of our genuine duties to others. And, and one might think of some of the policy issues about carbon trading and so on, simply in, ter- in, in that way, okay? Doing no harm is, is simply the burden that we have to accept because we can't do good, we can't do the good of justice to future generations, but we can at least atone for our bad behaviour or something like that. Doing no further harm is just that. It may hurt, but the only point of it is that uh, um, it's our just deserts. All right, that's, that's a, 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 a pessimistic conclusion. Um, the second um, contribution that I think political theory can make to thinking about sustainability is, is to do with this question of, leave aside now the, the very pessimistic view, uh, what, what it can contribute to the question of what should be sustained. And here we come up against all sorts of questions about how we, we think or what we think future generations might actually want or what we should pass on to them or what they would, would expect of us. Now, it's very difficult to give any content to that other than in the most general sense. So I suspect what we can, the best we can say in terms of, of um, what we should sustain is at least the sort of limiting conditions of the possibility of leading any kind of meaningful life in the future. So, a sort of liberal account of of what it is we pass on to the future in terms of one that doesn't privilege um, particular forms of life, but looks at the conditions that make any meaningful form of life in the future possible. We can all think of the very minimal conditions, clean water, and, uh, and various other very basic things that, that we might want to use to cash out that idea. Whatever future generations want, they're likely to want to lead healthy lives, to raise families, however that's conceived, to engage in meaningful economic, social, cultural and political life, however all of those things are conceived. Um, they're likely to want access to clean to, to resources such as clean water, breathable air, cultivable and habitable land and resources, as well as possibly the valuable experiences of nature in and of itself. That doesn't, in a sense, prejudge what they might want to do with that, with any of those things. So in that sense, it sort of fits neatly, I suppose, to the ideas that one finds in liberal theories of justice, which don't privilege particular forms of life, um, but provide the conditions for for people to make relevant choices between those things. Looking at these um, uh, considerations, as I say, we may may already agree that we're beyond the point of no return. And if so, the question arises, what follows? 
One could be that we have no obligations to the future and therefore the, the question is, is moot. Well, we do have obligations to them, but there's no prospect of improving the conditions of the future in relation to a baseline of today's living standards. Well, let me leave those questions on one side and turn now to the, to the issue of social justice. The point is that somehow or other social justice is linked to questions of sustainability. How, how would that be so? Most all candidate theories of distributive justice or social justice are concerned with distributions within one population, however conceived, okay, either within closed domestic societies, rather like Rawls' famous account, you set boundaries to a community and you, you, you think about justice within that, or cosmopolitan theories which sort of stretch those boundaries to potentially include everybody or all manner of sort of points in between. Okay. And one can think of the idea of a closed society really as just a temporarily closed society in that you know, it doesn't actually mean, a, doesn't mean justice stops at Dover. It could just be that we count everybody sort of here present in a sense as at any one time as, as part of the relevant community. So that takes us back then to the question, can we stretch that idea that, that, that applies to domestic or social justice or, or international justice to questions of intergenerational justice? And again, my, my, my conclusion is going to be rather sceptical. Let me start then with just a sort of very um, general account of, what, of how we might start thinking about so the question of social justice. Um, we don't necessarily need to think of it in terms of contractualism or what would be agreed by parties in an original position, but certain, certain features of, of that, of other egalitarian theories, we, we can generalise. The first would be something like fundamental equality. That's the sort of basic, um, the, 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 the basic axiom, whether we can justify that or not. Um, I'll leave that to one side for now. But that's, that's where we start, the egalitarian plateau. All theories are really about that. They differ in terms of how one puts that into, into effect. Then we can identify a number of theorems in relation to that basic egalitarian axiom, which give us what we might call the specific principles of distributive justice or social justice, how we put into, into effect this broad egalitarian concern. One of them... Well, let me just pick out two, which, which, which again have, have sort of been referred to before. One of them is a, is a principle of responsibility, um, familiar to uh, debates about luck egalitarianism, for example. The, this is the idea that um, the legitimacy of different outcomes is a consequence of voluntary choices. So, you know, insofar as there's a difference or an inequality, that's, that's acceptable or justifiable. If it's the consequence of people's choices voluntary choices with, with whatever their initial starting set of goods is. And, and the, 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 the reverse of that is that obviously if people are not responsible for the circumstances that they find themselves in, then they have a claim to compensation. Okay? So you're either responsible for your position or you're not. If you're not, then that gives you at least a prima facie claim for some compensation. And social justice theories are like that, you know. If you're not responsible for being poor or disadvantaged or, or disabled, then you, know, you have a claim on others for disadvantages that you did not choose or could not, cannot be held responsible for. 
Another view is um, vital interests or you know, some kind of basic human interests theory, that all individuals have certain vital interests um, that justice requires that these are given a, a high priority or perhaps the highest priority um, and that these should be secured first before we look at the distribution of other or the satisfaction of other wants, desires and interests. So these vital interests might be, the, might be things like um, civil and political rights which we distribute equally before we then ask people how much um, other things they want or whether or not they actually want certain people excluded from the vote and so on. These are sort of trumps, they're prior. Um, and then a third issue, which I'm not going to really say much more about, is just that we can sacrifice those things when there's, a, there's an advantage to all. Um, no one's disadvantaged by any modification in, 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 in those two positions. All right. So justice then is about roughly questions of balancing questions of responsibility and, and vital interests. Let's see how this works in relation to sustainability. Remember the issue about sustainability was um, how we could let's go back to Brunton's, how we can meet the needs of the present without compromising the possibility of future generations to meet their own needs. Balancing the legitimate demands of the present against the vital interests of future populations. How do we do this in a way that does not overburden the present or the future? Of course the problem with intergenerational judgments is the future is kind of open-ended. We don't know how many generations we're looking at when we're making these kinds of judgments. Now, there are all sorts of ways in which one can think about how you operationalize the principle of responsibility in relation to sustainability. But one thing comes up, and this is where I want to sort of finish off, the problem that, that, that comes up in this question about social justice and sustainability when one introduces the idea of or takes seriously the issue of population and population growth. This renders potentially the priority of basic vital interests as, well, it, 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 it denies its priority and reduces it to a secondary consideration, partly because of the consequences, and in a, in a famous paper, Brian Barry sort of acknowledges this. So having, having said we just extend um, the way we think about social justice here and now or internationally to the intergenerational case where we have significant concern for vital interests and we don't think that the vital interests of some cease to be important just because they're in another country or they're far, far away... When we think about intergenerational justice, we have to take that view. We have to abandon the idea of the primacy of vital interests. Why would that be? Well, given what we already know about rates of population growth and projections into the future, the numbers that we're looking at at any particular stage into the future are going to be significant. So therefore, the burdens on us that fall through this criterion of of sustainability applied through vital interests is going to be significant. In fact, I mean, he thinks it's so significant that we just have to abandon it. It would make it would make impossible any kind of meaningful way of of of, of living now. So the claim is then that when we think about 
sustainability, when we think about the claims of future generations, we have to apply the priority of responsibility. The condition of future generations is going to be a function primarily of their responsibility for their own procreative decisions. And if their population size is larger, significantly larger, then they can just, in justice, be worse off, that, worse off relative to us. That's fine. That's not a significant injustice. Okay? That's because, as I say, we don't have a unilateral obligation to impoverish ourselves because of this sort of open-ended population growth. But then I, I, I want to finish by just drawing attention to what the implication of that is. Okay? It seems that the, th the, the needs of thinking about justice between generations forces us to reprioritize the considerations that we bring into play when we think about social justice here and now or internationally. So we might think that, okay, you know, the burdens of population growth are going to be so onerous that we can't really take seriously the idea of, of vital interests as having priority. We just can't. But that seems to be rather easy that seems to rather concede the issue because that's just the same as saying, well, the burdens of doing justice are considerable, therefore we can't do justice, we have to do something else. And of course we can make the same argument about international or global justice or we can even make the same argument about justice within the state. We really take seriously the obligations of the difference principle or a more egalitarian distribution of resources here in the United Kingdom, that's going to require quite a lot of us doing rather more than we might want to do. So the burden is heavy, we don't really like the burden, so we won't do it. We'll have low taxation and we'll just cut everything back as a result. Well, justice arguments are supposed to rule out that kind of special, special pleading. Okay? So the burdens then of, of, of the future ought to be ruled out similarly, or if not, we need a good argument, why not? And we need an argument then that doesn't, in a sense, um, relate back to the way in which we want to think or keep the privilege of basic interests or vital interests in the way in which we think about justice here and now. When thinking about social justice within current generations, we'd not, for example, restrict the just claims of children just because of the fecklessness of their parents. So procreative decisions are put to one side. We don't think that the children of the feckless poor, whoever they happen to be in society, should be worse off just because of the procreative decisions of their parents. We think every individual counts. That's the egalitarian premise. So why should we, in, in a sense, be countenancing the punishment of future generations because of procreative decisions that they take themselves? The other curious thing is, of course, that once an individual comes into existence, once a human individual comes into existence, then they fall within the remit of our basic commitment to fundamental equality. Everyone counts for one, no one counts for more than one, but no one counts for less than one. So any person, if they are of the relevant ethical significance to fall under, principles of justice or the concern that justice tries to model are going to be of equal value, right? And if they're not intergenerationally, then why, 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 why do we allow that argument not to hold in relation to 
remote strangers in the world we find ourselves in now, why doesn't that undercut international justice? So the point is that the introduction of luck and responsibility is subversive if it's not constrained by an account of equal basic rights or vital interests. But if we account for basic vital interests, we in a sense lead ourselves with incredible burdens as a result of justice between generations. Now, one thing we could do is just to abandon justice between generations. Um, but I think that would, be, that would be a difficult one. One could say that responsibility matters most importantly and appropriate decisions don't fall within the remit of social justice internationally or intergenerationally. But I think that would be a hard argument to sustain because if, if we want to include in our account of what you know, what, what, what the vital interests that people have are things, if we want to exclude from the account of vital interests that people have things like the right to make procreative decisions, we clearly narrow the scope of what it is to lead a meaningful and valuable life. That's a significant impact on one liberty that we, we currently take very, very seriously. Now, there are ways around this, I suppose, in, in issues of population size may well be settled by two consequences. One is global environmental catastrophe. Um, there just isn't future populations to worry about. The other is that we just change our, our value of, of the right to procreate or basic rights or basic interests, whatever they happen to be. But it seems to me that we can't assume that that will happen Otherwise, that gives us a sort of special advantage here and now in thinking of what our obligations are going to be. It's, it's worse than just thinking that, well, in the future, people will have just solved the problem of technology and will, will produce themselves out of scarcity and so on. It's actually assuming that people will have the motivations, the desires and interests to desire things that save us from having to worry about justice. And I think, I think that's, I mean, that's taking the... the, uh, the uh, well, I think that, that, that's something we, we, we absolutely cannot assume here and now in thinking of what our obligations are. That, that's too much a case of special pleading. So then, let me, let me conclude. Where does this leave us um, in thinking about the relationship between social justice and sustainability? I mean, one, might, one, one conclusion might be to say, well, just abandon thinking about sustainability and social justice. Think about social justice here and now, forget about the future, and hope that it'll take care of itself, or people will have just changed their values and so on and not worry about these things later on. But I think there's a danger in that view. Another view would be to just, you know, um, well, another implication of, the, of abandoning the, 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 the continuity between, inter, inter, between them, justice here and now and, and, and intergenerational justice, is that it looks a lot like the sort of special pleading that occurs in debates about international justice too, where we, we sort of narrow our concern for convenience sake rather than take seriously the genuine scope of the obligations that we currently have. And of course, Barry, who, who, who's one of the sources of this argument, was very adamant about not um, allowing sort of statist or associative arguments to trump the claims of global justice or co cosmopolitanism. 
So we, we, we've got the prospect of um, discontinuity between inter and intragenerational justice or the recognition that maybe sustainability is, a, is an issue too far um, or thirdly it might be that it's just not that important from the perspective of social justice or even from environmental politics and here we might want to withdraw from thinking about the links between social justice and sustainability and look at something rather more basic which doesn't involve weighing or equalising the concerns of, of future generations in the present but just think in terms of not doing harm and this I think can capture much of, of what's perhaps most urgent about environmental politics um, here and now which is to do with things like accommodating ourselves to the demands of, of um, um, in, environmental degradation, carbon trading and all of those kinds of issues. We can talk about those as bads, we can talk about those as harms that we need to respond to without complicating them by turning them into questions of justice and I think that's probably enough for us to be getting on with at the moment. So on that and on that pessimistic conclusion I'll stop. Well, it was always optimistic to ask three philosophers to spend 20 minutes each uh, speaking on such a complex uh, range of conceptual and theoretical issues. The result of that is that we are a little bit short of time, but I don't want to cut our discussion short. It is tempting to ask them now to reflect on the differences between themselves, and there are some pretty marked differences between the positions set out this evening. Very intriguing subtle but nonetheless strong differences of, 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 of reasoning and, and, and judgment. But I won't do that because it will cut short the time for your questions. But I'd be very pleased if some of you who are thinking of asking questions and do so might draw attention to some of those differences in the issues you raise. Now, because time is short, I'll take questions if that's all right in clusters of, of a few at a time. And um, uh, and then go to the panel to respond to them as they wish. So let's um, see who wants to, a brave person to start. Yes, Mike's coming to you. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, this is for Just say who you are and then. Uh, yes, Pietro um, Maffettone, I'm a PhD student in the government department and I wanted to ask um, to Professor Kenny whether I mean, if we really have to stop caring about wealth um, and getting richer, then whether China really faces uh, a tragic choice. In the end, I mean, once they are, have provided for the needs of their population, they might just stop growing and stop, you know, and leaving their good stationary state. So. Further issues? Yes, gentlemen. Patrick Lane from WWF. Um, all three of you made reference to the Bortland definition of uh, sustainability. And I'm just wondering, are we starting from the wrong place? Is that definition meeting today's needs without compromising the needs of the future in the context of a 50% population growth in the next 40 years? Is, is that even conceivable? So do we need to totally reframe the, the whole debate? Uh, 
Matthew Nicholson from LSE. Um, I just thought it was interesting, population growth has been a running trend, not just in what the speakers had to say, but the questions we've had so far. And the running assumption seems to be that there just is going to be huge population growth. I was at a seminar earlier this week um, where Professor Malcolm Potts from the USA was saying, in fact, if the family planning needs are adequately addressed, we could radically reduce that population growth. I wondered if any members of the panel would care to reflect on that and how we might integrate that into concepts of social justice going forward. Thank you. Uh, James Gladhill, PhD student. Um, we've heard a lot about the concepts of social justice and sustainability, but rather less about the discipline of political theory. I mean, I wonder whether these problems don't need just to rethink a lot of the presumptions of political theory, because until recently some Marxist conceptions predicated the achievement of social justice on the achievement of unlimited material abundance. Similarly, Kantian strains of political thought are predicated on the existence of human beings and the value of, to be achieved in the relationship between them. And it has, has nothing to say about the value of human life existing at the, in the first place. Now, that would seem to raise profound metaphysical questions about normally addressed by religious systems of thought about the value of human life per se and the continuation of the human species. And is political theory, qua political theory, actually qualified to pronounce on those questions rather than becoming a theoretical reflection on issues of public policy? Can I take one more now? Yes. My name's Tendai Bloom from Queen Mary. <coughs> I wanted to ask all of you, but it was based, and thank you very much for your talk, so it was based on Professor Caney said that um, maybe Europe and America, having developed in the past, should now um, enable other countries to develop by um, not making them have to make tragic choices. But I just wondered, is that based on where we are now, or is that based on the fact that um, this development was induced by non-sustainable activities in the past. That's five. Shall, I, shall we let's go to you first, Anora? And do you want to just pick up on those points that were? Um, I think to? I'm more agnostic about how. Um, it's horrible to have someone invisible speaking, so let me stand up. But, um, I think I'm probably agnostic, more agnostic than colleagues about the. Uh, link between social justice and sustainability because I take it that you can have sustainability without social justice and I offer you two ways. Sustainability uh, could be secured in an unjust world in which a minority impose the austere life on a majority. That's sustainable but it may not be socially just. And sustainability can be uh, secured in a world in which uh, human beings have perished, uh, but the rest of nature continues. So I'm not certain that sustainability leads us straight into social justice. Now, if you take it the other way around, I do think social justice... Uh, once you add the temporal dimension, the intergenerational dimension, is going to require some level of sustainability. But uh, you can imagine, for example, a socially just world in which uh, uh, each generation 
adapts to the circumstances it actually faces so that a planned continuing dwindling population succeeds in living within its means. And you can imagine a transformative version of the same where um, it's not so much the size of successive generations as uh, their conceptions of how life should be lived. So it's a sort of transformative conception. Now that, of course, requires one to take a rather subjective view about of, um, how a theory of justice works, but lots of people do take such views. So I don't think one is actually locked into um, merging the topics of social justice and sustainability. You can have, um, in a number of ways, you can have sustainability without social justice, and in some ways you can have social justice with limited sustainability. And that covered bits for a number of questions, but I don't think it quite answered any of them. <laughs> so five questions. Um, on, on, on wealth, I mean, I think the main thing I'd say here is that the situation in China is so bleak and the access to energy that exists is um, so bad. I haven't got the figures here, but I have and another paper I'm happy to send you, that actually requires uh, an enormous amount of development um, just to meet those. So, um, and the same is true of China. I think 80% of those who have access, who don't have access to safe energy are in India and China. So um, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's, I think the empirics of it are such that meeting that causes the tragic choice. Um, I'm going to be very brief. So, um, on uh, the Brundtland definition, I have kind of two comments about this, and, and one will seem paradoxical to probably everyone here. One is I think it's, it's insufficiently ideal. So it says it meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So it says we should meet some minimum standards now for, uh, without compromising some minimum standards in the future. And I think that's not fair. Um, I think people are entitled to more than minimal needs, um, and it's wrong to deprive them of that. So the second comment that is, um, when you said it's inconceivable, I wondered whether the thought might be we should, well, here's what I'd want to resist, the thought that we should water it down because we're going to miss the target. Um, we should water an ideal down if it's just um, impossible to achieve, and we ourselves haven't been the ones who've rendered it impossible. But because it looks difficult to achieve and demanding to achieve, it's not a reason to forfeit it. There might be other reasons, but... but um, so that's why, I, that's why I hold to a more ambitious ideal, which we will fail to meet, but we should know that we're failing to meet it. Um, briefly, on population. So my three thoughts on this all. The way we should think, well, A, you shouldn't ask philosophers, right? You should ask people who have the empirics, and, and that's a serious point. We need to know the moral cost. I mean, we need to know how successful a policy would be and what's the moral cost. Secondly, then we need to know all the other options. You know, you can have prices, you can have carbon quantity restrictions for carbon trading, you can have command and control, which takes the form of regulations, carbon disclosure, education. Uh, I wrote a long list. Well, uh, you can um, uh, tell people to be vegetarian. You can use um, incentivize clean technology. There's a whole panoply of other options, and I wouldn't want to say, yes, we should do this without knowing the moral cost of it with respect to the others, and I'm sure my panellists would agree. And the other thing is, I mean, I need to know, one needs to know the drivers of population growth. Um, 
and whether, for example, increased wealth will diminish it. Um, so those are all the things I'd want to put into the population kind of question. Um, two other brief comments. One is on, on the discipline of political theory. There's a very nice piece by Dale Jameson where he says um, contemporary ways of thinking just can't cope with the nature of climate change, for example. Um, and I thought initially that was quite plausible. But the more I thought about it, the more I think what, what Paul said and Brian said was true, that the conventional notions actually can be stretched but the challenges are formidable. I have to deal with a global problem, often, which is intergenerational, which might involve risk and uncertainty, um, which has all kinds of psychological obstacles because it's a kind of collective process of degradation. So I'm just asserting I do think the conventional moral uh, and political concept can do it, but they have to adjust to the kind of multi-challenges that I've specified. And then very, again, briefly on dogmatic plan, a very final question on why current in affluent countries or members of them should pay. I have two thoughts. I mean, one is I defend an ability to pay approach. But the other is um, we might distinguish between two categories of people with ability to pay. And if your wealth, suppose you're asking John to pay and Apu to pay, and they have the identical amount of wealth, but Apu's came about in a clean way and John's came about in a climate endangering way then I think when they resist your demands for them to pay, um, Apu's got a stronger case. So, uh, but there aren't very many people like Apu. Most people who are affluent um, have got their wealth in ways that either they or other people um, engaged in climate-endangering ways. So it's kind of two principles. One is ability to pay, and the other one um, is <coughs> it's not only people have the ability to pay, but their wealth came about in ways that helped cause the problem, and so there's an element of unjust enrichment. I'm sorry it's so bold and dogmatic, but I do happy to send the material where I've argued it. Cool. Um, okay, let, 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 let me start with the population issue. I mean, it may well be the case that population is less of a, less of a, uh, a threat to a link between social justice and, and sustainability. But I think that, that requires quite a lot of, sort of confident hope about how things are going to turn out. Um, as Simon says, you know, it, it may well be that the drivers of population growth will start to limit population growth over time, but the question is over how long, and how does that then help us, um, you know, quantify our obligations to to future generations? I mean, if we're going to start thinking about what you know what we owe to the future, you know, we, we, we need to be able to get on with that. You know, we can't defer all of these questions indefinitely in the hope that. You know, the world will, will diminish. But I think the other important point that the population raises, and this, is, this, is, this relates to, 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 to Anora's conclusion, of course we can have social justice um, without sustainability, and we can have sustainability without social justice. I mean, I, I, my, my fear is that in the end, you know, it is actually that choice we're faced with. It, it, it isn't that social justice in, uh, or sustainability... Sus entail social justice or, or, or the reverse. It is that we have to make a kind of choice about these things. And that takes us into the question about how we want to deal with some of these controversial questions about whether or not um, population control or other aspects of dealing with um, uh, sustainable development are going to have to be done coercively and that would involve a significant departure from how we think of or the value of justice in terms of something that is, in a sense, um, minimally coercive. You know, 
it, it, it connects with, it doesn't connect with our primary reasons for action, but it connects with reasons that we currently have in a minimally coercive way. It isn't just a tool for institutions to, to, uh, to um, build significant compulsion on. So I think, I think I'm, I'm much less um, optimistic than, say, Simon is about this. In I'm terms not optimistic. Of, I'm just thinking we need to know the empirics. No, I'm not. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, I, I, think, I think just to, to pick up the, the point about the, the structure of, of political theory, I think give, then given the choice between thinking about some of these um, practical issues and thinking through the logic of our, of our arguments, I think does force us to rethink what political theory is about. I mean, if, if one of the consequences of thinking about social justice in the context of sustainability or environmental collapse or, or much less serious but nevertheless real forms of environmental degradation, then, you know, we may end up finding that the terms of our debates have changed significantly and and that this is a sort of pivotal moment. We didn't always think about social justice in the way that we do. Mind you, we didn't always think that everybody was to count for one and nobody was to count for more than one. For much of human history, we didn't think most people counted for anything. So, you know, one, one has to be careful about thinking beyond the terms of the current debate in because that can allow us to do all sorts of things which depart significantly from a sort of egalitarian baseline. <laughs> I didn't touch anything. <laughs> Keep going, Paul. Um, <laughs> Shall we move on? Okay, let's stop there. I'm yeah. completely thrown by the, uh, the ascending right, well, screen. We'll come back to you. <laughs> I, I, I would like in the, in, in the closing moments to give each speaker an opportunity just to say a few final words. Uh, but I'd particularly like them to, to comment on the contributions of the others, of the others, and perhaps to say something about what they think are the, the, the differences between them, which are worth clarifying, I think, for, the, for us. But before I do that... Um, is there someone else, uh, one or two people who perhaps would like to just raise one or two other issues? It is getting late. Yes, lady there. Yeah, two or three more. Can we take very concise, sh- short questions? Sure. Um, Kate Donald, LSE. Um, I was just wondering what you think about the clash between um, human rights and climate change. Like Hillary Clinton said recently that you know, she was prepared to overlook human rights violations in China in order to, um, to cooperate over climate change. Thank you. And person, yeah, we'll come to you. Yeah, gentlemen back. Listening tonight, um, I, I can't help but arrive at the conclusion that the possibility exists that social justice and sustainability may be mutually exclusive. And, and I hear you going that way. And when I consider a scenario like the tragedy of the commons, uh, I see a regulator that needs to exist. And, and sometimes I think maybe social injustice is, is that regulator. Thank, thank you for being brief. And a, a brief final thought. Uh, quickly to connect, say, historical reflections about the Boxer Rebellion in China. Uh, let's assume uh, the audience here is uh, our historians and gather in 1905 and they are European historians from various nations and reflect about what happens in China uh, on the one side. Secondly, the transformation from the Weimar Republic into uh, the fascist regime, uh, let's assume we are 
uh, artists and uh, designers uh, and also economists, political uh, theorists, who have to decide about the continuation of the design uh, institution of the Bauhaus, which was at that time a very important thing and which was closed by the Nazis. And thirdly, uh, us now here uh, uh, as uh, uh, political theorists on one side or uh, legal experts reflecting about uh, the future. Now, uh, the question which I want to foreground is the design potential. Let's assume in uh, Oxford and Cambridge, uh, that's the last point, they had about uh, in 1985 reflected about the design of uh, instruments for the financial sector to help the city of London to avoid the situations which we are now all facing. So with that, I do not agree with uh, the Baroness's notion of uh, lumping uh, design and fashion in one of the human activities which somehow have amongst okay. aviation and so on a place. But I think design is a very, very crucial thing when it comes to okay. town planning, we got, we uh, land use, uh, uh, sustainability, market development, We got, it. We got so the point. Thank you. Now, unless anyone else has a burning passion, actually probably all burning passions should be suppressed at this moment, I would like then to, to ask the speakers to, to draw some of those points in in their final note, just to have perhaps two minutes each, starting actually with Paul in reverse order. Uh, uh, unless you want a moment, Paul, to no, think. No, no, no. And uh, to draw on some of the questions raised, but also perhaps to end with one or two reflections on what you think may be the similarities and differences between the positions that the three of you have articulated this evening. Well... What, 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 what can I say? I, I think the, the point I'd want to end on is, is, is similar to the, the, the point I started with, which was a sort of reflection on what does political theory have to add. And I guess it, it, it relates to the, the, the pessimistic conclusion that you've identified in, in, in our various activities. I suspect that, I'm listening to Anora and to Simon as well, that the current terms of our political theories are actually not terribly helpful in dealing with some of these kinds of questions. Right? And the circumstances out of which we are going to be able to make sense of what to do about things like sustainable development or how we conceive of sustainability, how we conceive of the demands of population growth or diminution, how we think about questions that we lump together under, under social justice are going to be things that, that change. Perhaps this is a point at which the, 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 the current terms of the debate run out. And then maybe we do have to look at, uh, at these questions in a more open way, perhaps maybe much more like the way Honora started her presentation, which is absolutely not to start with some kind of, well, here's a theory um, that seems to be doing the rounds and let's draw the implications and see what happens there. Much, much of the activity that political theorists engage in is, is precisely that and I suspect we're at one of those kind of um, dusk moments when the Hegelian um, owl of Minerva is busy flapping its wings and we're not quite sure what the dawn will bring but um, I suspect it will be something rather different to the terms of the debate that we currently engage in so that's a kind of waffly answer but that, I think that's where I come from. Okay, so um, there was one question about Hillary Clinton and human rights. I think the right response to that is uh, it would be tricky if that were the only way of doing it. 
but it's not the only way of doing it. So China has massive coal reserves that it desperately wants to use to meet development needs. Um, I think it's incumbent on those who don't want China to contribute to dangerous climate change to incentivize it either through carbon capture and storage or through clean technologies not to do that. So I just don't think that's the only option. Um, and they could revise the CDM, which is the Clean Development Mechanism, um, which, whose whole purpose is to do this. Uh, that's one comment. On, I, I had yeah, two uh, ones that kind of relate to what, what uh, my co-panelists have said. I, I need to think more about what they've said. But I, what I say, would want to say is really this, does sustainability and social justice, do they conflict? Well, the, the, the boring but correct answer, I think, is it all depends. It all depends on how you're going to define each of those terms. So um, you can define notions of justice which will clash with notions of sustainability because you're thinking about, in effect, future justice, and you're thinking about balancing justice now and justice in the future. And they can clash if you focus on ecological uh, sustainability, focus purely on the preservation of things of great natural value, because you can preserve those in ways that will jeopardize people's just entitlements. So what I was trying to do was to think of ways where they can be compatible, um, but to draw attention to the fact that if they're compatible, it's not because they're the same thing. The, the final thing I want to say is, actually picking up on what Paul said, and it's a further thought on the question about what political theory has to offer. I think the single concept that needs the greatest rethinking here is responsibility. Because our notion is so framed to deal with cases where, apologies Paul, you know, I hit Paul, um, where it's here and now, it's intrastate, uh, and it's intragenerational, and it's me and it's him. Um, what we, our moral theories really struggle with are cases where the, the, the causation is global, and it's intergenerational, and we've got risk and uncertainty, and it's multi-causal, so it's the fact that we collectively cause environmental degradation, and plus the other end of the spectrum, when, when again to quote Dale Jameson, he said somewhere, um, uh, climate change will kill millions, but it won't be on the death certificate of any, by which he meant it, it will lead to a incident, greater incidence of malaria, which will lead to greater deaths. So what we need is a notion of responsibility uh, that goes beyond the... Uh, ice like someone else and can deal with um, that immensely complicated thing and it's partly philosophical but it's also partly psychological because when you drive a car or take a plane flight you don't feel like you're causing um, that harm whereas uh, I definitely would so I will desist um, well I'm going to say one pessimistic thing, one optimistic thing and one thing about design um, <laughs> The pessimistic thing is about political theory. Um, I uh, stand, I suppose, uh, a rather arm's length from it as somebody whose work is uh, mainly in philosophy and when it is in political philosophy isn't squarely in what has been the dominant tradition of the last 40 years, which is liberal, individualist, rights-based and distributivist in its account of social justice. I think those are the terms of debate that need rethinking. That's why I have found, like at least one other person in this room, Kant more inspirational than my uh, old friend and good teacher, Jack Rawls. Um, and uh, I know, those are challenging things to say, and I don't say them lightly, uh, but it may be that... Uh, 
uh, it is that out of Minerva moment, and we do need to rethink those terms of debate. Now, that's, I mustn't, as it's two minutes I've got, explain how. Uh, Say something optimistic. You'll be surprised to hear this is about population. I think we ought, in uh, uh, subjects other than demography, just look a bit more closely about what, at what the situation is, not just at projections of global population. I find it really striking that I think at last count around 60 states, I stress states, are not reproducing at the replacement rate but below replacement rate. That is very striking, isn't it? Of course, they don't include India, China, lots of other poor states, and so on. But this is not an unimaginable transformation, and nobody has proved there's a single route to it. And I think the single most important thing to grasp in all this is that a major cause of population growth is increased longevity. If everybody's around for longer, the total number of people around at any given moment rises, even if there is um, uh, new births are replacement rate. But we do need to address the, the point made that uh, there are very uh, much more acceptable ways of addressing procreation than the ways that uh, have been had us scared to talk about population <coughs> ethics for all these years. They, and the Obama administration is already picking up some of those issues. So I think that there are things to be done, and uh, some of them are extremely boring, like enforcing the legal age of marriage, or uh, like supporting breastfeeding much more to reduce completed family size. So I think there's much to be done there, and it's not all pessimistic. Design. I didn't say design was unimportant. I said only that sustainable design was probably not a useful use of the concept of uh, sustainability. My list of various forms of sustainability was as it, uh, intended somewhat jokingly as a reminder of where the d discourse about sustainability has gone. And I wouldn't be surprised if you could find about a thousand placeholders in the formulation sustainable X just by rather more active Googling than I was able to do in preparing this talk. The question is which of them matter. And I think what matters ultimately is the sustainability of the natural world, the necessary conditions of the possibility of the continuation of human and other life. So um, uh, let's have design, and by all means let it contribute to a sustainable future. But I wouldn't therefore call it sustainable design, which suggests it has some uh, magic property, which it may or may not. Thank you. The next uh, occasion in the Middle Man series will be Peter Singer, who will be speaking here in two weeks' time. I look forward to seeing some of you here. And I would just wish to, to, to thank our, our speakers for deeply thoughtful presentations, deeply thoughtful reflections on the questions and on each other's 
papers, leaving us with enough challenging thoughts for an evening. Thank you so much.